Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In this new series, I am focusing on portraits of women who have an outstanding career in games. How did they get into games? How did they reach their high position and career? What have been their personal and career choices to get to their level, and why? I want to bring more light to the wide range of career paths available for women in leadership positions in the industry and to inspire you to dream big for your life and career too. Let's begin. So today I'm sitting here with Stephanie Prue, and to tell more about Steph, Steph is a Canadian who has spent the past 10 years working in the games industry in Europe. She started her career in games at Stardoll, a metaverse-style sandbox game with tens of millions of players, mostly women and girls, Then she joined King in 2014 and worked as the first narrative designer there and eventually global narrative lead there. For the last three and a half years, she's been working as the global narrative director at Gameloft. These roles have taken her to Stockholm, Berlin and Paris, as well as through the narrative process on literally dozens and dozens of games. Hi, Steph. How are you today? I'm so great. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on the podcast. Good, good. I'm very excited as well. So talking about excitement here, what are you excited about these days, whether it's work or personal? Can you tell us about it? Yes. Well, of course, I have so much uh, professional things to be excited about at Gameloft, but you know, a lot of things have yet to be released, so I dare not speak of them here. But what I can say I'm super excited about in my personal life is my little garden here in Stockholm. I share a small garden plot with some friends and we're there every weekend and, you know, sometimes in the evenings and just enjoying the nature and being close to, you know, all the creatures and critters in the garden. It's it's really lovely. We grow quite a lot of vegetables and flowers there, so. <laughs> My God, uh, you're, I think, you're talking about one of the dreams that I've heard also many of the women uh, or some of my friends, We I think, I don't know, it's a generational thing uh, of growing your own garden and that's amazing. Are you in, still in the city when while having a garden? Yeah, that's that's one of the very, very best things about living in Stockholm. It's actually one of the greenest cities in Europe, and there's access to nature literally right outside your door. Like, I just cycle over to my garden, and it's in the middle of a nature preserve, so there's no sounds from cars or anything like that. And sometimes deers are even in the garden. Like, I have to protect my vegetables from <laughs> deers that will come in and eat them. So it's really quite a lovely uh, balance of both living right directly in the city in the center of a major, you know, metropolitan European city, but also having this beautiful access to nature, forests, and uh, even small garden plots and that kind of thing. That's amazing. So that definitely inspires me. And I, I will think of if there are solutions in Berlin to have a like community garden. I thought uh, a lot about it actually during uh, the pandemic. And we even had a game or team, Plantopia, where uh, the main character, Olivia, was like uh, doing urban gardening, like community garden, exactly uh, a bit out of the city. So you're living this dream like in reality. That's amazing. And out of curiosity, it's been a long time since you have had the garden or what made you start, you know, this idea or initiative? I have actually been interested in gardening for a very long time, like even since before I left uh, Toronto to move to Europe. So I got into sort of urban gardening there. And then when I moved to Stockholm, it was lucky because one of the women that was working at my first game job, she had a garden plot actually in the in the space where I also have my garden plot now. And she just invited me one day because she needed help, like help with weeding because <laughs> it, you know, nature really overgrew. <laughs> 
grows very quickly and you have to be on top of it. And I kind of said, yeah, that sounds awesome. And I got a garden plot there the next year. So I've had actually a garden plot in the same uh, garden for, I guess, nine years. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, I may ask you more about this uh, offline. As we talk about gardening, then also we're here to talk about games. So back to games, you are working currently as the Global Narrative Director at Gameloft. And I'd like to understand, you know, what is this role about? I haven't been so close to Gameloft you know, recently. What's up there? So what's your mission there? You know, What are you up to? Okay, great. Well, I think I can start by giving a little intro on Gameloft. It's actually one of the oldest sort of mobile games companies in the world, I guess. It's it's an over 20 years old company, has a huge amount of history, huge amount of legacy. Today, we don't uh, consider ourselves fully a mobile game studio. We're making games um, on so many different platforms right now, you know, from Apple Arcade to Switch and to, <laughs> to PC First, and even for unique brand partners that we work with sort of as one-off. And on top of that, we still, of course, make free-to-play mobile games. So we're quite a diverse company in the sense of like what sorts of games and products we're even making. On top of that, we've got all of these legacy games, and we're also making both our own IP and working with you know pre-existing franchise IPs like Disney and Lego Star Wars. So really, really big franchises as well. And my role is actually to oversee all of the narrative in every game that we have, both legacy and in development, and make sure each game is sort of integrated with a fun and fresh narrative. And I do that with the help of a global narrative design team that's sort of scattered across the world. I did work also at Gameloft, but it was some time ago, and I do remember we were working with a lot of amazing franchises. So I still follow like the ones uh, that are at Gameloft today, and they are very big indeed. So I'm curious here to understand more as well the structure of your team, because I know as well Gameloft is a quite a wide company, also yeah, many games in development. So I could imagine you have a pretty big team. So how big is your team, if you can talk more about it and what kind of professions you have in this team and how are you organized you know, to support the teams? I think right now we are 10, including myself. We are a very diverse team, and that's very important to me because we have so much power. We tell stories and sort of who gets to be the heroes in the stories and, you know, everything that you kind of think that the media can help shape. We take a really high responsibility for that. So from my perspective, it's very important that we're a diverse team. We are from... I think, sitting in four different places in the world. So we have a Romanian narrative designer sitting in Bucharest. We have a French narrative designer sitting in Montreal. And the majority of our narrative designers are actually in New York City. And they've been there for many, many years. The legacy of uh, narrative at Gameloft is that the New York City is sort of where it's at. So that's where the majority of the narrative designers sit. And yes, we are very multi-talented, so much talent on the team in different ways. Each person, of course, has their unique strengths and skills that they bring to the team. And how we're trying to run everything is that each narrative designer sort of has the creative autonomy to oversee the narrative on any particular game they're working on, but with the wider support of the rest of the team. So we do a lot of collaborative work. I don't know if you're familiar with how sort of television shows are written, but obviously it's a collection of writers that would write a television show together. 
And we do a lot of things like writer's rooms. We we will look at each other's scripts and do punch-ups, which means that we're trying to make it funnier or we're trying to, you know, riff off each other, always trying to make the scripts better and better. So I think it's a really good strategy because we have a lot of fun this way. <laughs> we're able to sort of like do the best creative work, both as individual writers, but then also leaning back and, and relooking at the work collectively and just making sure it's the the true best work that we're sort of able to give as a team. Amazing. What you uh, call narrative designer, is it different from a writer? And how the narrative designer is uh, either integrated or collaborating with the development team, you know, with the game designers? Yeah, I think the actual term narrative designer is more what we use now. When I started 10 years ago, I was definitely called a writer. I was called a quest designer. At some point, I even said my own title was Creative Ninja because I thought that was a funny <laughs> title. We're, we're quite a new role, I would say, in the game um, development field. So today, I think the best way to sort of describe us is definitely as a narrative designer because it doesn't just encapsulate the writing that we do. That's definitely something that we do, but it's so much more than that. You know, it starts with a really strong conceptual development, thinking about the foundational questions of how a player will see their role, who they are in a game story space, what their goal is, and how they progress. As game devs, we're often talking in mechanics and systems and tech terms and art. And I think narrative designers really have the sort of place and space to be the advocate of the player during this whole process, because the way we're talking, the way we're seeing this product is actually how the players will most likely see the product. You know, humans have an innate capacity for story and storytelling. And even if you don't give them a story, they're still going to make up their own story at the end of the day. So <laughs> you should always be thinking about these things, even from the earliest stages. And then on top of that, we actually work with the artists a lot, do a lot of character and environmental design. You know, so much about a character can be shown through just the art and animations of that character. Their personality shines through. So, so much of what we're doing isn't even necessarily writing-based. It's more trying to really really infuse the game and every aspect of the game with sort of a coherent narrative and a lot of personality. And of course, we write some great jokes on top of that at the end, but that's not all we do. <laughs> I assume because you talk about many dimensions that are indeed are not just about writing. So a lot about design, player perspective, experience, which are considerations we have a lot when we think about UX or user research or even like market insights. So are you also working closely with those departments who are your main partners, you know, like before you create a story, what are your sources of inspiration or insights? Yeah, I think the narrative designers are honestly one of the most connected roles through the entire development process. Because as you say, we're starting right off the bat. We're talking to sort of the player analysts, any sort of trend analyst. We're trying to learn what players could even possibly want, even early surveys and, and data that we can find. What are the main trends coming up? We're also talking to devs, so game designers, artists, animators, even actual devs sometimes want to be included in the narrative process if they think it's fun or something like that. So we invite everybody to the table. And what we're trying to find out is the constraints that we have when designing a narrative. So we don't just pitch out any story we think is cool. We really try to understand to the best of our 
desirability? Like, do we have a game designer who's really keen on lore and really wants to go deep dive into that and will integrate all of the characters and the mechanics into that same lore? Or do we have more of a systems designer who might think narrative is cool, but doesn't think it's like that big a deal and actually just wants the narrative to enhance the systems rather. But on top of that, as we go through the process, we end up working with the legal team because all of our words will have to go through legal checks. We work with the localizers because of course, all of our words will need to be translated Mm -hmm. into all of these languages. And oftentimes we have to break down our own jokes and everything like that so that everybody can kind of understand and we can be sure that when our French translator gets it, they really understand what's funny about the joke and they can really sort of try to make the joke in their own language to the best of their ability. So we're working in that way. And then on top of that, the story kind of continues through all of our other channels like marketing and community. Mm -hmm. We keep the story play going even, you know, past the game itself. Like we love to engage and co-create with the marketers and and the community team and all of that. So yeah, we're one of those roles that I think is really like a connector, I guess. So we're working with so many different cultures right off the bat, but we're also working with so many different roles where people think in different ways. And we always have to put on our caps of thinking how to communicate this in the best way to this person, because so many people might be just on a different wavelength than you or might not see the value necessarily of the work that you're putting in and that kind of thing. I mean, it's always great fun to talk about a story, I think, and a lot of people really like it. So we tend to have really fun and happy meetings. That's amazing. When you also were describing all the departments, teams you have to collaborate throughout the whole process, it's amazing. It makes me think also about the type of team. So you are 10 that you need for uh, this uh, mission. You're also working on a global level, but each game is different. Players are different. Your collaborators are different. So when you hired or when you think of your team composition, what do you need for this team to work really well in this organization? I believe there's a set of hard skills, I think writing and so on, but I can see here like another dimension that is very important for the whole collaboration. So what are you looking into for your team members? We actually test when we're hiring a new narrative designer that both tests the writing skills, dialogue skills, kind of how good you are at writing jokes, but it also tests your conceptual thinking, how you're sort of going to daydream about what this world could be and how you're going to connect mechanics to it, that kind of thing. But once the test is done, more of soft skills that I'm looking for are definitely people that are able to work well in a really collaborative, creative space, you know, it implies a lot of things. You know, I've been living in Sweden for many years now. And what struck me when I first lived here was how humble everyone is. It's a real interesting sort of characteristic, especially for myself coming from Canada. I'm not going to say that we're necessarily unhumble, but we're definitely always taught to sell ourselves a little or like say why we're good and that kind of thing. And in Sweden, there's none of that. And in working in that environment, like I just realized how important the low ego and humbleness is to having a really great and thriving creative space. Because at the end of the day, we have to have that psychological safety and we can't really have one or two people on the team acting like they're the greatest ever because then some of the others on the team who are equally talented just won't feel that they have the space to contribute and have fun. So I'm really looking definitely for people with kind of like humbleness, low ego, ability to have fun. Like I think that if you work in games, you really should be able to have fun and it really should be such a joy to work. Like that's definitely translated directly into the product which we're making, which is intended to make people have fun, right? Mm-hmm. 
And you also mentioned about diversity, like it was important in your team because, yeah, you are making global gains for global audience. So having a representation in how you discuss, I guess, uh, direction is really important. It is a challenge when hiring for diversity, I can tell for sure, like uh, for a game studio development, like certain functions. So when you have to cross skills requirement, plus on top of that, I don't know, gender uh, equality or a certain mix of culture you want to have in your team makes it harder to hire. Was that the case for you? You know, I was already kind of starting with a really nice and diverse team. When we've hired, we definitely go outside and try our best to post our job that's available in all these kind of spaces where maybe marginalized people would be. So we're posting on like women in games groups. We're posting on game devs of color groups. We actually went to the game devs of color expo and we're sort of pitching our <laughs> role you know, know. for jobs and that kind of thing because it's not just something that we're writing you know at the end of our job description we are literally going into the spaces where we're hoping that we can get a diversity of talent and really inviting them to apply for the job because at the end of the day there's so many barriers there's barriers for women there's barriers for people of color there's barriers for lgbtq plus there's barriers even now on my team i have two people who don't have english as a first language They're narrative designers writing at the highest level in English, but it's not their first language. And that's also kind of something to think about, right? Because I don't want somebody's dream to not be able to come into fruition just because they weren't born in a country where English was the first language. Like, that's what spell check is for. So <laughs> it's not the end of the world, right? And the second part of that is also making the space welcoming and inclusive once you do get these people, right? Because so much of what's happening in the game industry now is that certain groups of people don't really have longevity in the industry. Okay, we get them to come, we get women and we get people of color to come in, but then when they actually come in, there's actually quite a lot of different reasons that they don't feel comfortable staying in the industry, right? It's as though you have a bucket or something and you're putting all this water in the bucket, but the bucket's got all these holes like you have to not only get the water in the bucket but you also have to like patch up those holes right because at the end of the day we should be really doing everything we can to make sure that everybody feels included everybody has a voice everybody can be themselves and give the best of their true strengths and talents thanks a lot for sharing And a few points for reflection. I hear from you that you put a lot of attention and intent in the space, the team, the culture you have created or that you have first inherited, that people feel welcome and have a sense of belonging. That's very important. And I think that's the start, right? So first you be aware and also empathy to, okay, are we doing things right? Are we creating the best environment? So I think so. it's one takeaway for the audience when we, are we everything in check to even want to have, you know, a diverse team, like we have to see for ourselves that we can change. And another point that I think is very important is this proactiveness in making yourself visible when you're hiring, right? Just the anecdote that you went to an expo and we really are looking for, like this is our mission, vision, etc. It's a proactive approach. You cannot expect by throwing it in a LinkedIn and wait for things to happen because, yeah, unfortunately, the reality is like either the people that you may be looking for in a diverse way are not there or there are a lot of bias on those platforms that prevent you from reaching a wider group of applicants. 
Yeah, exactly. I think that at the end of the day, our biggest mission on the narrative team at Gameloft is to really push sort of our global consciousness of different groups and possibilities for people, you know? A lot of people don't see themselves when they play games. The characters, the heroes, they don't really represent who those people are or think they are. But the magic that happens, I think, inside you when you actually just see yourself in another person on the screen or, you know, in a game, it's really like connecting and it really allows people to even imagine more possibilities for their own self in their real life, more choices that they can make, more space that they can inhabit. And it's just so vitally important that we really consider and design mindfully characters and stories that allow those connections to be made. And of course, the more diverse my team is, the better able we will be to reach the most amount of people and make it so. So that's really my personal mission in this role. And I know the team shares it. So it's really something that we all can unify behind and we all really go for it. <laughs> I can sense this excitement totally from you. And very important that you are really have a very strong united mission as a team that makes our team strong and you know durable in the long term. So I'd like to hear your opinion about do all games need narrative? And depending on the, of course, answer, what would make a game eligible to really need narrative? Yeah, so this is a question that's actually been posed to me a lot in my career. What is narrative and does it even need it? I think I'll just uh, pick apart this question a little bit if you will indulge me, because it's something that I think impacts a lot of narrative designers in the industry. I think the first part of this is just considering what narrative is. As we talked about earlier, you know, thinking of us as writers, that's really just one small facet of a narrative. During the coronavirus pandemic, I was in a quite a severe lockdown, and I ended up visiting a lot of museums online that had digitized their space. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I saw that really got my curiosity and sort of thinking brain going was a really, really old chess board. The chess pieces, they had been, you know, found in a bog in Scotland in something like the 11th century or something like that. And you could really see all of these chess pieces. And I noticed that the queen, you know, the bishop, the rook, they were all very intricately designed. So they were really artistically designed to truly show that that was the queen, that was the rook, that was the bishop. Why? Right? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, chess is like almost a, a perfect example of a great conceptual narrative design. Your pieces are set up tactically in a war formation. You're the king because as the player, that's the last sort of piece to fall. And when it's fallen, the game is over. You're facing your opponent and your goal is to capture their king or alternative player. And you sort of, you know, move your pieces. You're the commander of this army. Now, each piece, the queen, the bishop, the rook, everything, is actually representing a really important social hierarchy that people of that century would have understood innately. So you kind of understand where the power would be, why these different pieces have different levels of power, that kind of thing. A lot is being given to you 
just by what you can see and the abilities of those pieces. So I could just tell you all of that information. And I've never read this. There is no instruction manual necessarily for chess that tells you all these things, but you know it instinctively because that's what the play intuitively tells you. And it shows you a social hierarchy and ranking that you understand. We understand it to this day. We understand the tactical nature of the actual board. We understand capturing a pawn. We understand, you know, capturing and falling of the king. So that right off the bat, I would say, is narrative design. It's really early narrative <laughs> design. And it helps so much in a game. It's very hard to even pick it apart out of the actual game experience. But it's a very strong conceptual design. And I would say, honestly, all games need that because it gives you a framework on which the player can actually understand their play. From there, if we want to go further than that, we can, you know, just to keep up with the chess metaphor. We could have had all of these like character bios where like <laughs> the queen is really evil or like we can really take that foundational level of narrative design and really make it have so much personality. But you definitely need that foundational part first. The only game I can think about that doesn't have it is actually Tetris. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just shapes coming down and it's so, so, so intuitive. You lose really quickly if you don't understand what's happening. You know what I mean? But I would say that having the narrative helps you in so many ways that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you don't have it. So when you have this foundational narrative, you can have a vision that every member of the actual game team will understand when they're making design decisions. So how should our board be laid out? How do we actually do the intuitive mechanics and that kind of thing? How do we set up our UX? How do we talk to the player? All of these questions are just answered right away with a very coherent, functional, and foundational narrative design. And then on top of that, when you actually want to get into like, how do we market our game? How do we position our game? How do we engage with the players over our game? So much of that is that you need really strong character design. You need really strong like world building and everything like that. And finally, I know just from my own experience, if you create a game with no real narrative, design, you actually limit your ability to have and build franchises from the initial game. So mm. it's a bit of a risk these days, I think, really, because we always make a game hoping that it's going to be the greatest, biggest hit, you know, and you want to make all these new sequels already. But to do that, you really need both a really coherent world building done and also a character design. Otherwise, you don't have anything to build your franchise on. It's very good to think then about narrative design in such a broad way. I think it's more a lack of understanding, you know, like more to the writing part. But it will stay with me, this anecdote about the chess. I think about it again. And from your experience, having worked also on some games that had writers and some others not, and this has been also in a stakeholder discussion. From your experience, has it been some difficult conversation where narrative design or the intervention of narrative designers had to be negotiated and I have heard even in the past like what is the ROI of having narrative you know like uh, why should we invest in this so what has been your experience there? Yeah, it definitely changes based on what 
the games companies and that kind of thing. Like I can definitely say now at Gameloft, there's a lot more understanding and passion for the craft of narrative. So I'm really grateful for that. I don't really have to have a lot of these conversations Mm -hmm. anymore in my career, which is a real privilege at this point. But I remember having the conversations and trying to really explain why it was so important. And in terms of the ROI, narrative is actually so, so, so cheap. We can really do a really strong conceptual design in probably less than a week or two at the early stages of a game. It's not a huge cost up front. It's not, you know, writing this Shakespeare level story (laughs) and there's so much text and we're just spending all this manpower on that. We're not doing that at all. We're just really solidifying a vision early in the process. And that helps everybody. Like it pays for itself right off the bat, I think, because, you know, one narrative designer dedicates 20 hours to really hammering down conceptual groundwork for the narrative. And then that helps everybody. It helps the game designers think about their world and all the mechanics that they're using and try and reinforce the narrative. And it helps the artists to answer questions when they're actually designing the environments or the characters or anything like that. They already know, you know, who the player is, what the player is doing and what the player's goals are. So right from the get-go, the development cycle is helped so much by the strong narrative design work that we do. So I would say that the return on investment is pretty instant. And then you get all of those extra benefits that I spoke about earlier on top of that. But I think it's hard for people who maybe work in data or business intelligence. And of course, I understand they're trying to quantify a lot of things, but it's just so difficult to quantify a foundational piece of design. If you think about it, narrative is something that's used in most facets of life, you know, in advertising, we have brand stories and we have all of these ways in which we communicate to each other. Humans were made to tell stories and we're made to fill in the blanks and our brains work in this way. We can express stories to each other all the time. So from my perspective, I can't see a way of designing a game without thinking (laughs) of the narrative. It's very hard for me to think in another way. For most things in life, you truly need a narrative. You need to have that vision or else players, they're going to know something's wrong and they might not know what's wrong, but they're definitely going to not feel a strong pull that I think a great narrative design can really give to a game. It can really make it so intuitive and so smooth and so fun. It just adds so, so much, but it's hard, of course, to quantify in any kind of data or return on investments style of discussion. Mm-hmm. And not everything can be quantified here. So uh, the very good point is totally at the stage of building the vision is really important and it's a communication tool for uh, you know the team developing it, but also in the future for players. And so it stays with me, like it's all part of our lives. And at the end of the day, yes, we are creating a game or a product that will generate revenues, like will translate in financial uh, outcomes. But what people value as players, it is in the connection, right? Also something I'd like to take a step back on, more on your career, 
is how did you get into narrative design or writing? Did you start from there and did you start in games? Could you tell more about your journey? I loved as a kid, you know, watching so many movies. I was a huge film geek in my high school years. And I really dreamed about being actually a director, you know, in the film industry. And I got into a really great school in Canada and they were focused on sort of film and television production. And I did the first year and I realized really quickly that... I do not have the visual skills and the sort of artistry to tell a great story in the way that you would need to to be a director. I didn't really cotton to it in the way I thought I would, and I didn't really have the passion to do it once I actually got the camera in my hands and stuff like that. But before the second year started, I kind of thought, oh, should I you know, continue with this program? I don't know about this. But I sort of started the second year, and I just took a screenplay writing course, which they had offered also. And I loved that. Like my whole being was alive (laughs) when I was in that course. And I understood the very foundational components of storytelling. And from there, I just specialized. So instead of, you know, going director track or whatnot in the school, I went actually screenplay track. So I ended up graduating with sort of a specialization in screenplay writing for film and television. And after school, I was both doing a little bit of entrepreneurship on my own. I really always liked creating digital products and stuff like that for some reason. But I was also trying to get into the comedy scene in Toronto. I ended up writing for like a kids show in Canada, but eventually I moved to Sweden. And of course in Sweden, I had no chance to get any kind of job in television writing because I I could not speak one word of Swedish when I moved here. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that was, that was definitely a no-go. But luckily Sweden and Stockholm has a huge thriving ecosystem for game design. And I just got so, so very lucky that a month or two after I moved to Sweden, I saw a job that was looking for kind of a quest designer. And it was on a game that I had played myself. really liked. So it was great. I got that job and I just truly never looked back from there because I think games are such a growing and exploratory medium. And it's hugely fun to try to create interactive stories as the medium itself is developing. So it's hugely thrilling. I really love it. But my, of course, first passion wasn't necessarily to get into games, even though I had played quite a lot as a kid and stuff like that. I didn't even know that you could work in games like it just was not intuitive like maybe I'm a bit older than some of the listeners but game design schools didn't exist and like (laughs) it just wasn't like a thing I just don't know how to say it better than that it was not obvious that (laughs) that this was a place you could actually have a career so I kind of landed in it just by good luck but of course I think now there's so much more of an understanding of the possibilities for narrative design in games and I think a lot of people can kind of see the, the future of that as well. Which game was that, that you were on a quest designer? Was it that King? Oh, no, it was at Stardall, which was kind of an open world game. Ah. It was actually very, very popular sandbox open world game in maybe like the mid-aughts kind of thing. It was, mm-hmm. it was very, very popular. I think so much of the learnings that I had working on that game are now hugely relevant as the metaverse is exploding and like uh, Roblox. Yeah. And there's so much happening that I just think back to Stardall and, and it was such a great experience for me. Mm-hmm. Also, mentioning about the evolution of narrative or even like games, like it was not even a career. And I'm curious to hear from you, what do you see as uh, opportunities of evolution of narrative in games as I see this growing more and more, where some games look like AAA productions, 
We have even interactive story games that almost look like movies. So what are your thoughts about this? I think it's a natural evolution for games and movies to merge somewhere. I mean, different writers clubs and that kind of thing have been talking about this for like, you know, like at least eight years kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the issues are very many. It's just never been done before. <laughs> so it's very hard to intuitively know how to do it. I think that the technology in many ways needs to catch up. I think that VR might be the first medium that truly bridges that gap. It's really hard to see. But I think there's more and more space for hybrid style products. I even saw and have played through some of the sort of television shows on Netflix that are interactive. So Netflix themselves are veering into our direction, right? Like they are doing interactive content. There's so much space to kind of fuse these mediums and even thinking about how our world is changing all the time, how we're working from home, how we're collaborating, how we're talking on Zoom all the time. Like there's just so much space for us to be creating completely new games and products on completely new mediums and how that's going to look. I can only imagine, but I hope to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. For me, I see games really as a mass market product of entertainment, not so far from movies or music, right? So I think uh, there's still a lot to do there and it's very exciting so far. For my past decade in games, it has never been the same. No, precisely. <laughs> Everything changes so fast that even when I think about what I thought three years ago, it's completely irrelevant today. So. Do you still write in your position? So are you hands-on in the writing? Yeah. So as I said, how we structure it is that everybody gets their own creative lead space on a project. And the reason that I want to do that is just because I know through my own experience that you you really throw yourself into something that you know you have the final creative say in. And I want everybody on my team to feel that way. So everybody sort of has their own creative space and is in charge of writing and everything like that. But as I said, also, we do do a lot of collaborative writing. So punch up sessions, writers rooms. I love to join these. I love to, you know, try to do the best joke or whatnot. And it's great because we have so many actual real comedians and television comedy writers sitting in our team in New York City. So it's really fun when a bunch of us are just trying to make each other laugh. But yeah, I definitely love to read and write everything. All of my life pretty much is, is sort of engaging in different narratives of various kinds, whether it's books or ballets or, you know, I do a lot of these escape rooms. I really like those and they always have a fun narrative. I mean, I'm always looking at different ways to tell stories and that kind of thing. And I do enjoy writing. But when I write personally, like outside of the company, it's mostly just for myself. It's just for mm -hmm. myself to have a creative outlet where sort of you have full, full, full control and nothing really matters, whatever happens from there. So I really like to write in that way personally. Yeah. I think it's important as we work in the creative field to not put everything with expectation with our main work need to keep channel this creativity but not have this pressure of performing or delivering and I think it's really healthy to have other out-of-work activities that can nurture this creativity. Yeah, absolutely. It's something I always try to tell my team as well is like everybody needs to seriously log off and we're done working at six or whenever the end of your day is and then go do something fun, like go engage with whatever else, right? Because they reinforce each other. Exactly. When I go play in my little garden or whatever, I have such a nice evening. But of course, my brain in the background is thinking about these creative problems or a way to solve them in a fun way. So I think everything that you do both inside and outside of the job is, is kind of enhancing and you just have to 
to always make sure that you're setting good boundaries, I guess, to to have the space to be creative on your own terms or to do whatever you do in your free time. And a last question, more on reflection as well of your career, because you have grown a lot to the role of director where you are today. So when reflecting back, what did you tell to your young staff that you know today and you didn't know back then? You know, I've listened to every other podcast from the season, <laughs> and this is my favorite question to hear all of the other women answering. I think it is so cool and interesting and insightful to hear what different people would sort of tell themselves back then. And I would definitely echo, I think Laura said, be cynical. <laughs> I love that answer. That's really, really funny and kind of true. So I would echo that a bit because I definitely wasn't cynical enough going into this in my early <laughs> 20s. And I think Sarah said, said good, clear, and early boundaries, really strong boundaries. I think that's very, very important as well, working in the games industry. Even from the get-go, you need to always be thinking about what's important to me, what's my values, what's okay, kind of in terms of my time and what I'm going to do at the job, that kind of thing, and really express that clearly. Myself, I would say that you don't have to prove anything. Any time in my actual career where I've gotten into a situation where, you know, I felt like I had to prove something, like I had to prove like my validity or even narratives validity or my competence over and over and over, it's just not worth it. And it's just the wrong place for you. If you ever get into a situation where people are making you feel like you're not good enough and you're pressured to perform in some weird way, those people are not the correct place for you. So you should just move yourself. You don't really need to stay in some kind of weird environment and try to prove that you're good enough or whatnot. Like, that's just never a good idea. And there's so many great, amazing people in the world and so many truly great, amazing orgs <laughs> that you can join. And I think it's just hard sometimes when you're in a situation that is not working out you know, mentally just kind of think like, oh, I could have a better space for me elsewhere, or it could be better mm -hmm. elsewhere. It's so easy to think, oh, I'm the problem, or like, I am not good enough, or I'm not doing it correctly. But then that's like a self-reinforcing problem, and you're going to get stuck in a really bad and toxic situation. So yeah, I would just say to myself, you're good enough. And Sometimes you're going to mess up and you're always learning and you're imperfect and you're a work in progress all the time. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that somebody should make you feel not good enough, right? It's a bit like my garden. You know, I make sure that all the seeds have the proper environment to thrive. If they don't, they're not going to. But the natural state of them is to grow and thrive. <laughs> mm -hmm. Great. That's very encouraging. Thanks for sharing And as we're reaching the end, you know what's coming. I have my rapid oh, yeah. fire questions. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Are you ready? Okay. For transparency, I kind of improvise them as well as we go. I have a backlog of questions, but I don't know until we get there. So it's also um, spontaneous for me. So my first question is, what do you think of at last before you go to bed? I actually try to do meditation before I go to bed. So I know they say, oh, you shouldn't lie down and meditate because you're just going to fall asleep. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> actually the reason I do it then. So I'm usually doing like some kind of body scan and just feeling in my body. But it's really quite gentle to drop off to sleep like that. So the last thing I'm thinking about is probably like how my left thigh feels or something like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Second question, if you were not doing narrative design or anything related to stories, what other field have you sometimes imagined you would be doing? 
or dreaming of doing? You know, it's so funny because I think that you, you tend to see so many different versions of yourself. You kind of see as you grow and see how big the world is, oh, there are so many places for me that I would really enjoy being in. I think for myself, I would really love to do some kind of garden architecture. Speaking about my garden earlier, I'm just so passionate. I love mm -hmm. it so much. I think there's so much to be said about creating a healing space with garden architecture. So I think that I would sort of do something in that area. With that being said, I think that I would love to also be a therapist because I really like to sort of have that healing space and try to help people with their issues. But I've also been working in the games industry, developing my diplomacy skills, of course. And I think I would really like to be also like a local politician or something like that. Mm, for local change. You know, I'm just one person. I don't have a grandiose idea maybe of like becoming, you know, the prime minister or anything like that. But it would be great to do sort of local politics. Wow. Very nice. Many ideas. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Steph. I feel much more educated, I have to say, about narrative design after a discussion with you. So I'm very grateful and it was a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. And I just wanted to give both you and all the other guests for the season a big shout out. I've enjoyed so much listening to all the podcasts and I would be honored to buy everybody a beer or coffee if we ever meet in person and get to know you a little better because just hearing everybody's insights, being able to sort of just connect and hear myself in some of the answers was really a true joy and the power of this very medium. So thank you so much for setting it up, Sophie, and holding the space. Thanks a lot. You give me an idea here, maybe, maybe organize a face-to-face -face event, rise and play. That could be the first. It's an idea. <laughs> I'm there. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Um, take care, Steph. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this new episode of Rise and Play podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, rate and review the podcast. Spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership, how to hire a team with a vision, or how to lead and build a team for the long-term game. Until the next time, 